Good evening, Terry. I own a motel. That's your part of you. And you'd be welcome to spend the night in one of the empty rooms if you'd like. Oh, it burns! Oh, it burns! And I'm the devil. <laughs> Mikey Myers that lived across the street. And that's when the voice came. The night he murdered his sister. It told him to kill his family. Hello and welcome to the Necronomicast. My name is Wayne. This is Brian. This is Doug. And tonight we have a, a just a star-studded interview with Mr. Daniel Ferenc. He is a writer, a producer, a director, all things horror. If you like Amityville, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. Everything. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. this Amityville. Interview, this interview is for you. So uh, let's do it without any further ado. Do it. Our interview with uh, Daniel Ferenz right here on the Necronomicast. You know, it's always fun for us on the Necronomicast to open up our discussions of horror movies and the genre in general to those that are in the industry. And so we're very excited to have a conversation tonight with Mr. Daniel Ferenz. Daniel is a writer, producer, director. He's a man that knows a lot about the industry and he's done a lot of great projects. So we're excited to have him on the show, calling us from the City of Angels, Los Angeles, California, Mr. Dan Ferens. How are you, sir? Good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank Thanks you. Here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, what we always do when we have somebody new on the Necronomicast show is talk to them and kind of maybe break the ice by having them talk about what got them interested in horror uh, in the first place, maybe you can trace a little bit of back uh, your childhood and, and tell us what, what got you interested about horror and, and how it became your career and vocation. Well, probably being a kind of messed up Catholic uh, started that whole thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Certainly falling from that tree. Um, but I, I, I guess I have to really, this is kind of a funny story, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's reared its head again like this past week, so it's, it's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, in 1981, my mother had gone out of town. We were definitely not allowed to see movies like this um, for fear of the devil and things like that. Oh, yeah. um, so we had a babysitter, and she was high school age, and I demanded that she take us to go see Friday the 13th Part 2. Yes. And she did, reluctantly. <laughs> it was under the threat of, if you ever tell your mother I took you to see this, you know, you'll regret it. So, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. But she did, and uh, it traumatized me completely because this was something I'd never experienced in my life up to that point. And interestingly, after I got over the utter abject fear of the whole idea of it, I wanted to figure out how they did it. And that sort of unleashed this inner thing in my adolescence where everything that I did as a 
you know, a, a junior high school student was, you know, geared toward making movies that were in the ilk of Friday the 13th and Halloween's and all the things that were so popular at that time. And, you know, and remember, this was at the beginning of all these franchises where we didn't know there were going to be 12, 13 parts to them. Absolutely. At that right. point, they were really forbidden, verboten kind of things that you just, you know, you kind of was like the thing you dared each other to go see. Yes. So, you know, there was something really <laughs> genuinely scary about these movies back then. And so I became more and more fascinated by the idea of how do they do that? How do I, you know, it's, it's like, I guess I always liken it to people who love roller coasters. You either love them or you don't. But it's almost like you want to, once you, you've had that thrill, you want to keep re- re-experiencing it. And that's kind of what it became for me. And, and so my whole adolescence, I will have to say, was spent, you know, making knockoffs of these kinds of movies. And um, and that turned into somehow turned into a career that's now lasted about twenty years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so and that crazy. was a great decade to be to get inspired by horror movies. Uh, yeah. I mean, the eighties well, we were, were so time. Bad. We thought we were tempting fate. We <laughs> thought we were going to hell. We thought, you know, like you know, this was also in the days before. I mean, VHS was sort of there, but kind of just in its infancy. So you could go to these little mom and pop video stores and they would have all these obscure things. And I grew up in a small town in Northern California, Santa Rosa, California. Oh, did you? And there was no, you know, we didn't have access. There wasn't, you know, and of course there was no internet. We didn't know, we didn't have the direct access like now. It's just, there's you know, almost like you know too much um, mm-hmm. of what's going on out there. Right. I would save my allowance and run down to the corner, you know, newsstand and, and you know, look for this very, very, like, forbidden magazine called Fangoria. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> To, to see what the latest was from the terror teletype. So that just became my, my world. You know, my whole passion was, was truly these movies. Yeah, it's funny because I grew up in Santa Maria, California. Uh, oh, cool. Which is right by Santa Barbara, San Luis area. And uh, yeah, the same thing. Fangoria Magazine was my gateway because I was right. so terrified of Friday the 13th, part one, <laughs> that <laughs> right. I wanted to know how they did I it like at that point. One, I, didn't, I hadn't seen part one, but I didn't really need to because they, re, they kind of showed the whole movie in the first 10 minutes yeah. of part two, so yeah. I knew what was going on. That's a great <laughs> anyway. story. I, I cut my teeth on part three, and it was we had um, Cox Cable. was brand new in Omaha in 1983, mm-hmm. and so my parents right. were older, and they went to bed early, and I would sneak down, and I would watch... Friday the 13th part 3 but only like 10 or 15 minutes at a time and, then I, and oh, I'd be wow. so scared I'd have to go back up to bed and then like shake under the covers and then like oh I saw it's going to be on you know two nights from now at, at you know two in the morning so I'd go down and watch another 15 minutes of it and oh my god yeah, yeah, it was a great those, time like, man it was a great time to grow up you almost like scrambled HBO boxes and yeah. like a little tiny like a little box and then you'd have to kind of like jiggle it a bit and I'd like take the box off and put it in the TV that where nobody could see it so I could watch these. You know, they'd repeat Halloween 2 on, you know, on oh, yeah. HBO back then. And, you know, anything that was horror, I, I just, I absorbed it. I, you know, that was, that was the language of film that spoke to me most. Nice. Mm-hmm. And although I had grown up a, you know, a huge Star Wars geek like the rest of us and all that, I think for some reason I really became more geared toward, you know, the horror genre and I was more I just was just so taken in by it that it was just something that I, you know, wanted, really wanted to do from that time on. Hmm. Did you ever think about yeah, getting yeah. into the, the effects end, or were you always about, I want to oh. be a filmmaker? Or writing. It was always my thing. I was always writing scripts, hmm. uh, even junior high, high <clears> even <throat> younger than that. I mean, I think I was writing scripts when I was like seven, eight years old. Wow. 
just banging these things out, and I taught myself how to type. And <laughs> you know, in those wow. days, we didn't have computers. I was using yeah. like a you know little right. typewriter. And uh, but then the whole thing really came to a head. I mean, I'd go back to that Friday the Thirteenth thing. But a couple of years later, I just decided. I think I was fourteen. And I decided that, well, it's time to make my mark into the big time. So <laughs> At 14, I love it. I'm going to spend my summer vacation, and I'm going to write, this is after part three of Writer of the Routine, I'm going to write the next sequel, and I'm going to explain to these people how this needs to go down. <laughs> and I did that, and I wrote a letter to Frank Mancuso Jr., the producer of the series, who was all of maybe 25 years old at the time, <laughs> making these films. His father was the president of Paramount Pictures, mm-hmm. but so I sent this letter off, and whatever I wrote in the letter <laughs> clearly made an impact, because Frank wrote back to me, wow. and he wrote me this incredible letter of encouragement. He certainly didn't want to buy my script, but <laughs> 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 but, but the great thing about the letter was where he said, you know, we, we are currently in production with the final chapter, and the series will come to an end. So I, I still, to this day, kind of hold that letter up to him and laugh. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but the fact that this guy from Hollywood like recognized me and acknowledged me in some way just made the difference. I think that was the moment where I was like, oh, wow, holy shit, I can actually do this. Right. And it was just it, like the light switch immediately went on. And from that point forward, it was just that's what I was going to do. That's, so that's incredible. Careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, the funny thing is that Frank, to this day, we remain friends. He is incredibly generous. He gave his very first interview on camera ever about Friday the 13th for me a couple of years ago. We did Crystal Memories, the documentary on the series. And uh, uh, it's just something that he hasn't really gone public with over the years. And he's really moved on from the whole franchise. And although I don't think he's necessarily embarrassed of it, I think it's time in life he just has moved on from a long time ago. But as a favor to me, he, 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 he stepped up and he did the interview, and it was, I think, one of the coolest things in that show. That was that short film you did, right? That was at the, uh... yeah, the short one. <laughs> that seven hour short. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, 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 so that's fast... a little bit of how it all, you know, the craziness began. So yeah. fast forward, you're writing studio executives, and then all of a sudden you are writing. Now, I don't know if it's your first thing that you did, but you wrote uh, an installment, number six, of mm-hmm. Halloween. How'd that come about? I did. Oh, boy. Well, in a similar way to the whole thing with, with Frank Mancuso, you know, I started, yeah, I, I, so basically, you know, so I lived in Santa Rosa, I grew up there, and kind of out of high school, I just decided, well, you know, if I'm going to make these movies, I, you know, I, Frank and all these people live in L.A., so I need to be there. Um, so I basically moved here out of high school and did a couple semesters of college, but it wasn't really for me, and I just really started writing scripts, and, and I'd already written a few. Um, and banging on doors and sort of going, hey, you know, I'm this guy and I know all about these movies and <laughs> somebody, should, somebody should listen to me. Um, <laughs> Trying to get that street cred is hard, I would imagine. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there was just a weird, like, you know, I guess when you're that young, you don't have that sort of thing going on where you're like, that's not how that's done. You know, like, you don't really know yeah. any better. So I yeah. think I was sort of guileless and I just sort of went with my instincts. And I wrote scripts that maybe were, I don't know, were great, but, but were enough to get people's interest. I mean, I had my first agent when I was 18, Amazing. and they started kind of showing me around town and introducing me to people, and I sold the treatment to TriStar um, at a young age, and 
you know, worked different jobs. I certainly wasn't like making my living as a writer at that time. I worked for, of all things, I worked for the Motion Picture Association for years. The, the, wow. the dreaded MPAA, the censor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, another irony of my whole life is that I worked for the censor board, or uh, among those people, for many years. And so when my gory movies later came out, you know, I think in a weird way they kind of turned a blind eye to all that because, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's just it's just him. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> yeah Dan's good but, people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so there's no bias there. But. Uh, yeah, so it just started in a weird way, you know. And, and anyway, but but circling back to your question, you know, with Halloween, so I had written a letter to Masifa Akkad, um, and it got to a guy named Ramsey Thomas, who was producing stuff for him at the time. And this was shortly after the fifth Halloween came out, so we're like around eighty nine ish at this mm -hmm. point. And the fifth one had come out, and I had this, you know, again, kind of like when I saw the Friday, it's like, oh, okay, there's this guy in a black hat and he's gonna he knows something and and he's part of this whole thing and, and so i instantly had this concept of what what this which should be and kind of like i did with frank all those years before a few years before at that point um i just wrote this letter saying you know i, I get this you gotta meet with me <laughs> and uh weirdly enough i got a call and it was from ramsey saying you know we are going to be interviewing writers for six and we're gonna make that movie right away and we were interested in what you had to say um, and by the way, send me a script. Send, send me something you've written. So what I, I sent him one of my Friday the 13th scripts, and I think something else I'd written at the time. Whatever I'd written was good enough to get me in that door. And I had my audience with Mustafa Khad, and I was nervous as hell. I think I was 19 at the time, 20 maybe. And walking in the door, you know, all the Halloween posters are on the walls, and <laughs> you feel like you walk to the principal's office in a way. And, yeah. and uh, and I sat down and, and I kind of pitched my little heart out for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes. And then it was like, thank you. You know, that was it. Wow. And dead silence for about four and a half years after that. Wow, really? And what I had come to learn was that the whole series had gone into a whole series of like uh, just legal discussions and, and not necessarily, I don't know if really lawsuits was were the result, but I think it was kind of a battle for the rights to mm, Halloween. Right. And I think John Carpenter got involved and Deborah Hill got involved and all the other producing partners that were involved in the series were kind of all vying to get control of it at that point. So during this time... years to un untangle it. And ultimately what happened was Miramax, which is a brand new company, well, fairly new, I mean, they weren't the Oscar winners they are now, um, had come in and wanted to buy up all of these titles and they bought Halloween. And so when that happened, I was like, well, that's over. I'm not going to get anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'll never, I'll never hear about this. Mm -hmm. And out of the blue, one, I don't know, May afternoon, I got, so that's 20 years ago, <laughs> I got a call um, from Mustafa's office saying, he wants to meet with you. Wow. And I went in and, uh, you know, he, he basically said with his, producing partner Paul Freeman, who was there at the time, and his son Malik, they said, look, you know, we've gone through six other writers. Um, nobody knows what to do with this. We remember you, and in fact, we still have all of the notes you left us all those years ago, and we use this as kind of our Bible of Halloween, because you seem to have the whole history of this down better than anybody we've ever known. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I had made this notebook with, like, the whole history of the franchise and every 
character and like a family tree and <laughs> it's like overkill for, for, a, for a first time pitch but, but, but hey, it was it enough for them to go I think years. what they saw was like the passion you know that I had for the for the series and and that was it that was the beginning huh. was that meeting and they had a timeline they had to start shooting that October this was already May so mm. that shows you how much of a rush it was to production Hmm. So I was hired by May or June and spent the summer, and off we went. That's so, you know, they said that overnight success, but it really took years. <laughs> yeah, really, and, and it really took them, you know, to for them to sit on it for four years. But it's amazing that they, they, they kept everything. You must have made quite the impression. So now uh, Something, you... Something, you know. I don't, I don't, I, to this day, I couldn't tell you what, but I think Mr. Todd was, you know, and God rest his soul, he was a, he was a gen, gentle soul and a, and a really kind man, a strong business man. You wouldn't probably want to cross swords with the guy because he was tough. But, you know, to me, it was like, you know, having your, your uncle, your nice uncle, call you up and, and offer you a job, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he, was, he was very nurturing, and he really protected the talent, and he really... You know, that whole time and that whole thing, and Miramax was new, and, and it was a difficult road with them from the beginning. And, you know, you, and I know you guys have probably heard, and many other people listening have heard the stories of what happened with that movie, but it, it just became a, you know, sort of a political thing. And as often happens when studios get involved, it just mutates into something you didn't intend it to be. But that whole time, uh, Mr. Todd really shielded me from all of that stuff. He, he never really let those people interfere with what I was trying to do. So, you know, I was always grateful to him. Nice. So you're an established writer at this point. You've got your, um, you know, your first major motion picture under your belt as a writer. And, and <laughs> yeah. then, so now, now you're starting to, uh, also jump into co-producing and, and directing. And how does one make the transition from writer to, you know, being a co-producer? Being on set. No. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I think the answer to that is there's no one way of doing any of that stuff. I mean, God, I have friends in this business who started off as assistants, you know, to celebrities or to producers. Some of them were animators. Some of them were, God, you know, it just runs the gamut. I think a lot of times it's, 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 it's sort of being at the right place at the right time and having something that, you know, they, I was putting quotes, that they want. Um, you know, attaching yourself to valuable properties is important. And I'm not saying that everybody can get their hands on rights to IPs like Friday the 13th or Halloween or, in my case, you know, Amityville Horror has been a big part of my life for many years, and mm. there's a whole backstory to that. But, um, but you know, I think sometimes having the ability to get to the people who own underlying rights to things is a really good way in because suddenly, oh, it's not just this guy who I may or may not know or give a shit about, but oh, he happens, he happens to have the rights to this amazing thing that we all would love to be part of. Nice. So that's, that's a way. <clears throat> but there's so many ways that people break in and end up doing these jobs and you know, it just it varies. Every, I'm, you know, 10 different people on your show would probably tell you to tell 10 different versions of their story, but you know, my way just happened to be that, you know, I had a love and a passion for these franchises and, you know, that love sort of propelled me into other jobs. Mm-hmm. It's real, it's real um, clear that your love for these genres, or I mean, for these franchises and the genre um, comes forth with these documentaries that you've been a part of. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I really enjoyed His Name Was Jason. 
And and then I saw Never Sleep Again, the Elm Street Legacy, all about Freddy Krueger yeah, and, and everything. Was that was a good one. Fantastic. Well, and then and then the seven hour plus bonus footage yeah. of Crystal Lake Memories. <laughs> right. Just when I thought, you know, I really enjoyed it. I was like, finally somebody's given Friday the thirteenth some due with this yeah. uh, his name is Jason. Boom. Like almost eleven, right. 11 hours. <laughs> how does how does that how how do you start to develop? I mean, I know there's a lot of material to work with, but these right. these documentaries are so groundbreaking and they're wonderful. Uh, well, how, how did those? You know, uh, what's the genesis of those? Gosh, you know, well, with Crystal Lake, I mean, that all goes back to my fortuitous meeting with Peter Racky, who, you know, by all in, for all intents and purposes, is like my my clone. Um, yeah. <laughs> we we are like born of the same you know DNA somewhere because you know, our stories are so similar as far as our upbringing and our love for that series and everything else. So the fact that in fact we were introduced by Larry Zerner, uh, oh, really? Shelley in part three. Yeah, he's been a guest on our show as well. Out of all the stuff was born. My you know my <laughs> even my own representation is Friday the Thirteenth alumni. You know Larry has been my good friend and. An entertainment lawyer. He's he became yeah. a lawyer in his later life, later life or his current life. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a, Larry's. Larry's actually been a guest on the show. He's on. Uh, oh, has he? Yeah, yeah he's, a couple years ago we talked a, to him. He's such a fun guy, and yeah. he's really just such a big, you know, part of my life. It's I can't overstate my appreciation and, and friendship for, with Larry and how much that means. But um, but he, you know, he was the guy who said, you know, there's this guy who I met who's doing, wants to do this book called, you know, on Friday the 13th, Crystal Lake Memories. And long story short, I don't know if I can get there, but, um, you know, we, Peter and I met, and, and out of that connection grew that book, and um, which I'm assuming you guys have heard of or seen. Um, oh, yeah, Crystal, D- like, Doug and I both have copies oh, yeah. of it. Oh, and yeah. uh, also oh, nice. we interviewed... Um... I mean, what was uh, Just Adrian a labor of love on every level. I mean, there's I can't again over overstate the fact that what a what a like born out of passion project that was. We had no publisher. We had basically no money except for our own. Jeff Garrett, who was our kind of unsung third partner on that project, uh, you know, put his money into it, and Jeff worked for Sean Cunningham at the time, just you know, kind of as his office guy. Um, and development person, and Pete and I, you know, had this connection, and, and Pete had done all the legwork for this. He had interviewed dozens of people at that point, and then that process went on and on and on and on and on, and then on some more <laughs> for, right. I don't know, a couple of years. And, you know, little by little, this book was being built out of his passion for it, and me just sort of being there to kind of, almost like kind of plow the field in a way, you know, and, and, and making... Uh, you know, all the other things happened for him, editing the whole thing and going through line by line. But he did an amazing thing with that, and nobody could see what he was doing. And in fact, when we launched the book in 2005, I think it was, mm. um, and we had this huge thing up at Universal Studios. It was a big gathering of like, everybody from the series that would, was able to come, but there were, I kind of want to say there were at least 100 people from the movies wow. that came that night at Shaw, and we had a big thing, and Jason came out and cut a cake with his machete and <laughs> it's quite quite a big to do but i think when people saw that book for the first time their mouths hit the floor because they couldn't believe that a movie or a franchise like friday the 13th was being treated like you know lord of the rings or star wars or something that they would have this kind of keepsake this kind of you know treasure of a book 
not only is it gorgeous to look at, you know, with the with all the um, the behind the scenes photos and all the artwork yeah. and everything, but the interviews themselves. I mean, a lot of those people don't pull punches. I mean, they they tell no, how they I... they talk. <laughs> about, they really talk about what it was like to make a film. Uh, you know, yep. away from the eyes of unions and things like that. And so it's it's a great read. It's a great book. And the documentaries uh, that you've been a part of, too. Uh, how does it get involved with um, also like Nightmare and Elm Street? Because in my head, I'm thinking about, you know, especially with Friday the 13th, you know, you've got Cunningham, Georgetown Pictures, you've got uh, yeah. Paramount, New Line Cinema. Now you've got Platinum yep. Dunes and all these all these people, you know, know, with their hands in the puzzle or hands in the pie, and it's a puzzle to kind of put it together and with rights and I mean, there's clips yep. from all the movies. I mean, logistically, it must have been a nightmare to kind of put together. It was nightmare doesn't begin to cover it, guys. And, and you know, I think we <laughs> here's the thing: like we we certainly learned a lot from his name was Jason, which you know. For for what it was, it was fine. But for me, it never really was what I intended to make. You know, look, Peter and I had labor, and I give full credit to Peter, but we certainly were in the trenches together 90% of the time on that book. And we all had a lot at risk when that book was done because we didn't know if anybody would buy it. You know, we had put all of our own money and our own savings and our own time and energy into it, and we were kind of like, God, you know, we were hoping we'd sell, like, maybe a 1,000 copies. And we had no idea, you know, that it would still be sold after all these years, and it's still being published, and it's incredible to us. Um, so, anyway, it was, you know, and again, but though that being said, you know, I think we felt like, okay, it's a risk, but it was a fairly smart one when you put a title like Friday the 13th on the book. But I think until you see the results of it, you don't understand the power of these franchises, you know, and just what a huge fan base there is out there. Um, when I did Halloween 6, I felt like I was in a vacuum. I felt like that kid that grew up and I was, nobody really understood what I loved and why I loved these. And I thought I was the only one in a way, you know, which is silly to think, but from a kid's perspective, you sort of think, I guess you don't take the dollars and cents of the whole thing. You don't realize what, you know, the fact they're making these movies, somebody's making a lot of money off of them. Um, but I guess I just never thought in those terms until the book came out and suddenly it's the hot commodity and it's getting these great reviews. So, um, but cutting to a couple of years after that, and an opportunity arose for me and um, a couple of other partners, one of whom was Tommy Hudson, who's been my loyal producing partner and, and friend for several years, um, for us to all get together and do something about Friday the 13th. So the remake was being, I think, talked about at that point, and um, there was just an opportunity to do something. And so we jumped on it, and little did I know at the time that they wanted something that was not going to quite work, you know, not going to be quite the compendium that we created with the book. And I guess because I had come off the book and how comprehensive it all was, the whole thing ended up becoming, you know, really just with a bit of a sour taste in my mouth, to be honest. Um, when we were kind of like seeing that all of this great material and I'd interviewed, I think, about 80 people on camera for for that show, and just seeing these interviews being wheedled down to like little two-second bites, and I'm like, this isn't the story of Friday the 13th. This isn't what <laughs> what I want to make. It was a highlight so that reel or something. Out, and it's, it's fine, I think, for what it is. It's fine. But it just, for me, never really spoke to my passion and knowledge, I guess, and my, you know, um, my understanding of what we really had in our hands. Because we had all that, that, that stuff. All of the interviews that we had shot were, um, they were extensive. And there was tons of stuff that didn't make it. 
So mm-hmm. like, you know, a couple of years after that, I was like, you know, let's, and I talked to Peter and I started, you know, talking about other things. And, and I said, you know, what if we did, you know, something about Friday the 13th? And this, by the way, was on the heels of us having a very successful run with the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, which in itself is a whole other thing, guys, because that's the one that, you know, talk about cutting your teeth on something where you really just didn't know what you were in for. I mean, I don't think any of us, had we known that we were going to end up making a four-hour show, would have even attempted it. Because really? <laughs> you got to understand, we were doing this with, similar to the book, like, no money, no support, nobody understood what the hell we were trying to do or why. Um, you know, this was basically made, like, in a garage. <laughs> and, take, like, like we're, we're like little toy makers in somebody's garage, like, like putting something together. And nobody understood what the fuck we were doing, but we seemed to know. And even if we didn't know, we just were on the ride, and we're like, well, we gotta keep going. <laughs> yeah. We gotta finish this. Yeah, we have all so, these interviews you know, in the can. Let's put it out. Yeah, yeah the- and it just was, it was like a, it was trial by fire, but, it, you know, like being thrown right into the center of the fire pit. Like, this, there was no, it was like did do or die time. There was nothing to fall back on if we didn't do something with this or figure out what we were doing. I mean, I don't think at that point, even some of the guys in the show even knew, like the technical side, even knew how to, you know, key a green screen. So, <laughs> like, they were learning as they went along on a lot of that stuff. So, so and, you pull, do you pull somebody like Heather Langenkamp in as a narrator after you've already kind of got some of it in the can? Or how, how did you hook her to be uh, the narrator? Well, that, yeah, I have to defer to Tommy Hudson. He, Tommy is, you know, well-known in the, in the Nightmare on Elm Street universe. And in fact, he and Heather have been personal friends for, I think, going on 20 years. Oh, so awesome. when I approached Tommy, who, you know, we had come off of the Disney with Jason thing, we were both kind of like, eh, it wasn't as good as we hoped. And what else could we do? And, you know, and then Andrew Cash, who had also worked um, as, a, as a co-editor on that show, came in and he goes, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, really, because he was the big Freddy fan of the group, and not that I wasn't, but he was really like the uber fan. And he said to me, you know, we should really do something with this. And then I approached Tommy, and he and I had a lunch, and I said, yeah, what would you think? you think Heather might want to do something with it? He said, I'll talk to her. I'm not sure she would. But we tested the waters, and we said, you know, would you come in and shoot this little teaser trailer for us, and let's just see what people say. And we shot this over like a weekend, and suddenly everybody's like, ooh, you know, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that, that started the process of all of those interviews that we shot yeah. back to back to back to back for weeks and months, and and then just the editing of it was insane. It was, I thought, I mean, it was, sometimes we felt like we were living inside of a Nightmare on Elm Street movie because we were yeah, so tired and half asleep half the time, and yeah. we didn't know reality from what we were doing, and... I remember going to the grocery store one night after coming out of like 18 hours of editing that show and seeing a world around me, and it all looked like zombies to me. It was the strangest <laughs> thing I'd ever yeah. experienced. I felt like we were living in a horror movie. Yeah, that'll do but it, it all too. turned out great, and, and the fact that people loved it, and it, it just made it all, the pain of the whole thing, you know, worthwhile, <laughs> I right. think. The end result. <laughs> I mean, the movie is, the, the documentary, even though it was four hours, was, was so comprehensive and, and had, mm. I think, something for everybody. And I think that's it. No matter what, how how much of a nightmare fan you are. That it right. had it had the behind the scenes stuff. It had some great stuff about the effects and all that. I mean, that that was just part of my favorite part. But it was a really comprehensive uh, documentary oh, that guys. that was just uh, yeah. It was his fan. The, you just don't get that. And as horror fans, sometimes we that's what we want to do. Just like as a kid, if we don't ever go into the FX or the directing or the writing of horror 
Well, a you get into a podcast about horror, or sure. <laughs> you know you watch documentaries. Yeah, well, I don't know no, how it's I mean, we want, and here's the thing: like we wanted to do something like you know because everybody remembers. I don't know you guys probably remember. Like they had put out that box set on on DVD several years before our show, and it was like this maze you had to navigate just to look yeah. at the bonus features, and half of them you couldn't find anyway. Right. And we we're like, God, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is like the coolest, most inventive creative horror franchise I think ever made in some respects and nothing's ever been done that brings it all together at least that you can even navigate so right. <laughs> and then there was that whole notion of at the time you know similar with the remake of Friday 13th then you know the same group of people were going on and they remade Nightmare on Elm Street and we kind of all had a just being the fans that we were especially Andrew and Tommy like all had this sort of collective thing about that like god you know they're going to blow this thing. They're going to fuck it up. Yeah. So let's at least give people, the, the fans that like we all were and the generation that we're from, let's give us one last hurrah on what that was and what it meant to all of us so that we at least pay tribute to the original series. And that's why we did it. Yeah, because your documentary, it really, it does play like a victory lap of the of the original movies. And it's, it's, it's heartfelt. And for a fan, oh, you know, and, and, and as a fan, just a guy that watches movies, I really enjoyed it because it made me feel like I learned something new that I hadn't seen before. And I've been watching these movies since, you know, since the 80s. <laughs> now, now, I'm not asking well, you for any insider secrets or anything like that. But, you know, the, right. the, that particular franchise is kind of stalled out. Uh, have you heard any rumblings? Or I mean, do you think they'll ever redo or not redo? I hate that word, but maybe kind of revitalize. Do like something? pick it up again? Yeah. I yeah. mean, here's the thing, guys. I mean, let's face facts. I mean, yes, of course, Freddy's not dead. Never will be dead. Right. <laughs> They're gonna do something with it eventually. I don't think there's any immediate plan that that I've heard of. Well, they just but... had the reboot a few years back. Right, and I think people are now, given the response to that movie and the, the negative, you know, kind of backlash to the whole thing, I think they're trying to let that kind of wash that away, let it die, let people forget about that, and kind then of, like the uh, other way. The Batman and Robin effect before uh, they came out with Batman Begins. I wouldn't compare right. them like that. <laughs> I like you know, the the thing. I mean, these, these characters are not only so popular, but look, to these studios, these are... There's some mountains of money to to, to the yeah. people who own them. So they're not stupid. They know what they have. They right. just I think they're going to wait for the right time. I know there's been another Friday the 13th uh, film in the works for the past couple of years. I don't yeah. think they've yet figured out what that's going to be or when it's going to come out. And they keep saying next year, and then they say next year. But I sure. do think like like that reboot, I think they want to kind of let that one die away, yeah. let people sort of forget that and figure out a new way in. I think that's the case with all of these franchises, whether it's a horror franchise or a, a Marvel adaptation or a, whatever it is. You know, maybe Howard the Duck will rear his head again one day. Who knows? Hey, why not? <laughs> hey, you know, that kind of brings us to it. And I, and I know that um, you, you can't talk a lot about it, but... But when you're talking about letting kind of things go and then bringing them back, now you're a mm-hmm. co-writer and a co-producer on the uh, upcoming Amityville: The Awakening film. And, and earlier mm-hmm. in our interview tonight, you said that you really uh, enjoyed the Amityville franchise. Uh, what brought you uh, at least to you know the point of of working on an Amityville film? Well, it's so funny how my life kind of like goes from you know kind of being the guy that um, how that, that kind of like tells the, the inside story of what that real, you know, the true story of it all. So, and, and, and this actually harkens back to my very first foray into ever attempting to make a documentary in my life. 
had no clue what I was doing at that point. This is, you know, a few years after Halloween 6, I was working on a couple of other things, still writing, and a friend of mine, my best friend, in fact, said to me, you know, would you spend the night in the Amityville house? And I said, fuck no. <laughs> uh-huh. you, you, <laughs> mean the, you mean the real house, the house? The real house, oh, yeah. Wow. And I, you know, I and I had that. seen the movies and I had read the book. It's funny, I mean, as a kid, and you guys are kind of around the same age, so do you remember this thing called the Scholastic Book Club? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That they would pass around the playground or whatever, and you'd pick out what book you wanted for a dollar, and they'd bring it to school, and, yeah. and you'd actually buy books. Well, one of the offerings in the Scholastic Book Club was the Amityville Horror. <laughs> Were you in, like, elementary yeah. school? <laughs> a fourth grader was suitable oh. for fourth grade reading, I don't know, but it was on the list of things, and I bought it, and I read it in the play- on the playground, and I think fourth grade, and I... Piss myself, yeah. and then yeah. and then there was the whole you know there was all of the talk and this was all leading up to the movie back in '79 about the true story and the family and this really happened and there were these murders and you know I to me and being like I told you guys this sort of like Catholic kid that was the most horrifying thing ever it was the devil in Long Island this could happen to you don't turn your back because he's going to come get you <laughs> so, the devil's so, coming get out all of that shit so terrified absolutely terrified so you know so anyway cut to whatever 20 some odd years later you know I have this conversation best friend and suddenly of course now I go oh that's an interesting idea maybe maybe I should find the people that lived in that house and I did and not only did I find them but I convinced them to speak about it for the first time in 25 years and that that's a rare thing that's, yeah, 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 yeah. And believe me when I tell you, the Lesses did not seek the publicity of this thing. In fact, they had, all of them, you know, they had divorced at the time, but had remained in good terms. Uh, yet, this was a chapter of their lives, let me tell you, that was not a pleasant one. And it was one that I don't think that they, it, it took a lot of consideration, let's put it this way, for them to agree to go on camera. Again, I said, yeah, this is a 25-year thing. I think people would really like to hear your story. You've been accused of a whole lot of things. And you could even, back then, could go on the Internet and read it. It was a hoax, and they made it up for money, and yada, 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 all of this. So, but I wanted to hear from them. I, was, I didn't know if it was a hoax. I didn't know anything about these people, other than there was this fascinating story of what they said had happened. So that was the beginning of my association with Amityville, and it was after I interviewed them, and I think I had them on camera for four or five hours. Um, And we whittled that down to a two-hour show. Um, And I interviewed everybody, you know, from everybody who said it was a a hoax and a lawyer for the the guy who had killed his family in the house, the sale lawyer, a guy named William Weber, and Laura DiDio, who was a young reporter at the time, who I think was very credible and told the story the way it was. But I just, and the Warrens, who are now famous because of their portrayal in The Conjuring, so every cast, a bit of the you know the cast of characters of Amityville, I, I was able to get them on camera, and we did this special for the History Channel, and that aired, and it was off of the reaction to that that George Lutz came to me and said, you know, there's <laughs> there's never really been a a movie that's really kind of tapped into what it was, and I think you could do it, and so he, what I didn't know at the time was he had signed a pretty smart deal for himself, although a convoluted one with regard to the film rights and the sequel rights. And so he kind of, over the years before he passed away, entrusted me with those rights. Hmm. And 
out of that became now this film that we've just made. And hopefully it will be released later in the year, but I don't have the exact date yet. But the film is done and uh, in the can, and we're excited to see what kind of response it gets. Nice, because well, we, we checked out the trailer, and it looks fresh. It looks uh, it looks exciting, and you know we, we're uh, we're definitely going to review it and talk about it. And we'll have an Amityville show, I'm sure, and yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll be real excited to see that come out. Yeah, you know, I think they, you know, again, you know, it's funny talk about everything going full circle. You know, on my, uh, I, you know, did Halloween Six for Dimension Films, and now here we are back to Amityville with these guys. And, you know, I think they really wanted to take this in a different direction. I think we really originally pitched this to Jason Blum, who is like horror meister guy now, and his name is on everything. Um, you know, Jason got excited about this notion of doing it, not so much exactly found footage, but more along the lines of kind of like a real period movie. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted it to look like real home movies that were shot at the house. This is kind of kind of go back and explore the real story, the way it really happened. And then, you know, the sort of the found footage thing fell out of favor. And, you know, and then it mutated into this version of it, which I still think is a really cool version. But I think it would have been interesting to see what that might have been. Right. But I guess, you know, let's look. I, I'm, I'm curious to see what people's responses to the movie. I think we have some good performances. We have Jennifer Jason Lee, who's amazing. Yes. And, right. uh, and she actually was just cast in Quentin Tarantino's new movie. Really? Um, she's playing playing the lead in in the Hateful Eight. She's oh, yeah. in the Hateful Eight. Exciting. Yeah. So we're, you know, so it's great to have her associated with our movie, and the fact that I think you know, obviously, with a lot of people who make their you know, I, I hate to call them comebacks, but in a way, you know, Tarantino's the master of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> taking back. those once very familiar faces and bringing them back. So yeah. doing that for for Jennifer. Yeah. So I think it's exciting. I'm I'm curious to see how it all plays out. Nice. You got anything else on the horizon that you can maybe tease us with? Are you writing uh, the next Nightmare movie? Or are you writing the next? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, actually, I have something original that I wrote. This is hey. funny for me. Uh, I wrote a, I co-wrote a movie called Havenhurst, um, which is really scary and it's really cool. It just actually got bought by Lionsgate, so it will be coming out later this year. What's the name um, of that again? We, What's the name? It's called Havenhurst. Havenhurst. Nice. Mm-hmm. And it's about the very scary goings on in our in a very old, forgotten New York apartment building Ooh. and the strange people that live there. That sounds incredible. Sounds good. So, so, so we that, got even more to look forward to. Yeah, I guess. Um, so that's, that's going to be coming out later in the year. And um, uh, gosh, what else? Um, and then obviously a couple of years ago we did Haunting in Connecticut, also with Lionsgate. So yeah. I was oh, yeah. excited when they picked up this movie to, uh, to work with them again. Awesome. I think they did, did a great job of marketing that. So maybe Havenhurst will turn into the next big franchise, and uh, somebody will be doing a twelve-hour documentary on uh, Daniel Daniel Ferrens and, <laughs> well, his, if, and his movies. If somebody's going to do a documentary on my thing, it could be somebody else. It's funny, you know, we get asked all the time, um, and I'm not kidding you, like weekly, maybe daily. Wow. Sometimes I get emails from fans around the world saying, "You know, when are you going to do that documentary on Halloween?" And I just feel like. That would be almost like incestuous. Like I don't think that I would be the objective person to tell the story of, of the Halloween series. But on top of that, I mean, now that um, Screen actually did such a beautiful job on their 15 disc, you know, special edition of the whole franchise and that alternate cut of six, which we've been begging to release for all these years, finally made its way out uh, in a legitimate release. 
So I don't know how much more there's to say. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there were so many bonus features on that set, of which I was part of some of them. I mean, I did some of the things for six. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know which way we would go with it if we were to do something with Halloween. And I just, again, I feel like I don't know that I'd be the right guy to do it. I, I think it might come across as being me, me being biased in some way. I, I wouldn't want that ever, you know, right. cloud people's perceptions of what the show is. <laughs> Well, it sounds like the future is certainly bright. It sounds like it's going to be a big year for you. And thanks oh, for drop thanks, thanks for dropping that info about Havenhurst. I'm I'm totally excited about that, and we'll definitely be. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's exciting for us too. And Mark Berg, the producer of the Saw films, was executive producer of this project. Oh, right so, um, so it's it's pretty violent, gory stuff. <laughs> um, like it, it was fun to do, and and it stars Julie Benz from Dexter. Sweet. <laughs> great wow. and, and uh and we have uh Fanula flanagan and she was great she was the you guys would probably remember her. you'd know her by if you saw her her name probably she's a great character actor mm -hmm. she became the other she became the maid yeah. in the others that sort of tormented nicole kidman of the three she's oh, the yeah, older yeah. sort yes. of spinster lady who who was one of the ghosts not that i'm giving yeah. anything away no, but, spoiler uh, alert! Oh my God, no! No, but that's she a, plays the she plays the kind of sinister landlady of the building. That's a nice right. teaser to get us excited for what's coming up in the in the uh, darkened theater. Now, everybody, Daniel, we want to thank you very much for your time and uh, for, for you know uh, being on our show. Uh, when we were talking about having you on the show, we were just like, "Man, this guy's done so much!" And you know, how are we gonna how are we gonna do this? You know, are we gonna have to do a uh, six well, hour interview? But yeah. <laughs> you've been yeah, right, guys, yeah, help you all. You know, uh, you, I it, hope I tried to I tried to sum up as much as I could for you. Yeah. you know what time we had here, but it was fun, and it's always great to. To talk to to people who love the genre as much as I do. Well, you got you got fans here, my man, and we will uh, broadcast this out to the other to the other fans of yours out there in in the world of the internet. And everybody, we had the the pleasure to talk to Daniel Ferens, uh, writer, producer, just horror man extraordinaire. And um, <laughs> so so thanks for your time. And uh, we will definitely keep an eye on your future projects, and we will we will certainly talk about them uh, in the future here on the Necronomicast. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Thank you guys so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. You've been listening to the Necronomicast, a weekly podcast produced by Wayne Brecky, part of the Free Life Media Network. For show notes and other information, go to necronomicast.com. <laughs> So today on the show, Daniel, no wait, <laughs> you say it. Hello, everybody. Working on now. So let's get right into it. Our interview with Daryl, Daniel, Daniel Ferenz. No, our interview with. Let's do this again. Uh, <laughs>